One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Why Would You Tell Me That? It's a podcast about wild, incredible stories and facts that we just have to share with each other and you, the listener. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram. We are at Why Would You Tell Me That? That's the name of the podcast. Uh, at Neil Delamar Comedy is where you'll find the fellow who's not talking right now. And I'm at Dave Today FM. And we should say we are proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network and also proudly doing a live show, which is happening next Tuesday. So this episode is coming out on a Wednesday and the next Tuesday, we're doing our live episode. It's Smock Alley. It's in Dublin. And the tickets are on sale from their website. They're in the show notes of this. And they're on uh, our link tree as well. They are everywhere. You'll find us wherever you find. Why would you tell me that? You'll find the information with the tickets. Please come along and see it. There's a handful of tickets left. And our special guest is Dermot Gavin. He's going to be so amazing. He really is. Uh, he's going to tell us not about a plant or a tree or a shrub or anything like that. He's going to tell us about a man from Ireland who changed how the world travels. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. Uh, okay, that's all for Tuesday and we'll have another episode next Wednesday. But right now, we're in the middle of an episode and Neil Delamere, you need to tell us what the hell is going on. Well, um, I'm just back from my recent sojourn. Did I tell you where I was on Tuesday? Oh, you did tell me, but make sure you tell everybody else because this is very impressive. I was in the Royal Albert Hall, Dave. Like, there's that thing. How do you get to the Royal Albert Hall? Yeah, new new cleaner. <laughs> they need a new cleaner and uh, I was just doing the back no, rows. No, you weren't. I was doing a gig and uh, I was doing a gig for Roger Daltrey of The Who. He didn't ask me specifically um, for his charity, Teenage uh, Cancer Charity and uh, Teenage Cancer Trust. Anyway, it's just the room, Dave, is unbelievable. What a place to do a you show. You walk backstage and the pictures on the wall, you know there's pictures on the yeah. wall, who else have Who's played been there? Who's been there, yeah. Alfred Hitchcock and Doris Day are Shut back up. there. And yeah, yeah. And then the next one is the Ford launch in 1932 of all their models on oh the floor. And then God. the next one is Frank Sinatra. And It's just amazing. And so, where where is your photo then in the pantheon of great photos is it? well it's um mine's basically bigger than all of those oh, yeah i got yeah. it blown up yeah. and but it's now the only place that they have space for it is under the stage so you have to go on a very <laughs> on, s- on the on the inside <laughs> under it's the actually, inside yeah, yeah. it's pa- wallpaper pasted in there yes and it's actually stretched out so do you know the way when you look at uh, the Sistine chapel from the ground yeah. it's perfect but if you're up close it's completely <laughs> wonky so if you lie on the flat of your back under the stage of the royal albert hall i mean i look absolutely <laughs> amazing perfect the point is I was there and I can you say I did it that's all I, that that's all I wanted to get across Dave. well done Neil Delmer yeah. well um, listen I've got uh, this is one of my favourite episodes ever because okay let me tell you what we've got for okay. You, okay I told you last week we'd be talking to Mary Pylon who's a, an author and a, a journalist from New York Times and Wall Street Journal and wow. the New Yorker about why everything that you thought you knew about Monopoly the board game is wrong <laughs> and it was invented to spread the opposite message wow 
everything is backward, right? What? Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's that's good. I'm I'm here. I'm here for this. I've ruined your childhood. Yes, completely. Yes. Okay, yeah. but for part one, I could do the usual and I could fill you with board game facts. I thought you might. That's what we would do. I'm going to go one better than okay. that. I'm going to get someone else to do it. You lazy! He's been to the Albert Hall once, and now he's not. It's not even. He's, this podcast isn't even good enough for his voice. I demand you call me the Royal Neil Delamere from now on, <laughs> like Leamington Spa and the Albert Hall. What? No, 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 no. I can justify the selection. Okay, okay, okay. He is the first ever guest, I think, pretty sure, to be featured on a mural. He's on his mural. He's got his own mural. He has his own mural. That's he's with other people, but he's on a mural. Okay. And as the host of Countdown. No, you didn't. I did. Who better to tell us this sort of trivia? Colin Murray is on the line. Colin, you oh. love board games, don't you? Well, I, I'm a big board game fan, but for a long period of life was ostracised for it. You know, it was a bit like being, a, you know, if you're an eight-year-old Cure fan in, in the 90s, no one wanted to play with you at school. <laughs> but now that COVID happened, and this is not me advocating for pandemic, you understand right, it was yeah. very sad indeed. But but I, I think people started to appreciate again sort of having people around their house. And it's like vinyl, you know, we thought, well, vinyl's gone, now you can download. And then, and eventually everyone went, oh, yeah, but there's something special about vinyl. <laughs> I think the same has happened as a mixture of all those things with board games uh, o- over the last, last few years. Well, also, during the COVID pandemic, we also all became Cure fans. Guys, yes, guys, you're you're back. Come on, on. he's waiting to do his vaccines joke as well. You should be shot. (laughs) Oh, dear, yes, you know what Neil Young said, needle in the damage done. There you go. Uh, yeah, so so now I'm a bit cool again. Like, yeah, Susie Dent on a recent episode, she's coming around this Friday with her daughter, um, for a games night. And now, all of a sudden, when you say to people, uh, you know, in a room. I, I've got ticket to ride Europe. They they don't all leave immediately because <laughs> they all play. But the Daddy's Monopoly, right? Oh, um, I mean, always, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, yeah. No. The big one. 1903, before you ask. Can I ask what board game you will play with Susie Dent? Because it's not Scrabble. I mean, she's going to shit all over you, surely. Well, actually, <laughs> uh, Susie and I have only ever had one game of Scrabble, and it was about 10, 12, 12 years ago, maybe something like that. And uh, and it beat her because, well, she just looks for good, you know, like, oh, look at that word. Isn't it lovely? And then she tells you what it meant in German, yeah. you know, 200 <laughs> years ago. And then she gives you the entire meaning of it. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not on the triple word. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just put down QI, not knowing what QI means. And uh, if I put it down with that other I is in the triple letter, I will score over 60 points. And I, I didn't just beat her. I mean, I would go as far as say, I roundly beat her. Wow. You humiliated <laughs> Susie Dent yeah. at Scrabble. I mean, I would ha- I would have that on my mural, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I think that was the low point of her life until she did our podcast, Dave, actually. <laughs> so, sorry, what was 1903 then? And that's the first Monopoly board, so I'm going to give you some Monopoly facts because it is, the, listen, I don't think it's the best board game in the world, but, you know, that's not the point. It's, mm. it's for me, it's sort of like the, the one that most people of our generation remember playing first. It was yeah, the definitely. board game, right? Yeah. So uh, I'll give you some amazing facts about it. First of all, at this moment, as we sit here today, the little greenhouse is a Monopoly, right? Mm. There have been just under three times as many of those greenhouses produced in Monopoly boards than there are currently houses on the planet. 
No. Oh, yeah. he's coming in hot, Dave. Oh, he's coming I in hot. I love a fact like that. I love a fact like that. So a little over six billion houses and about two and a quarter billion hotels have been made. There's just the best we can estimate it just on, say we, I'm not in charge sure. of the company. I don't work for the people that count houses. But the best we can estimate is about two and a half billion houses in the world. Oh my and God. And they've broken six billion houses in Monopoly. So it gives you an idea <laughs> of how popular it is. Phenomenal. Do you know uh, that on the Monopoly board, there's actually a name for the policeman and a name for the guy in jail? <laughs> no, there isn't. There is Jake the Jailbird and Officer Edgar Mallory. So that is the two names. Edgar uh, And then the guy in the front, you know, the wee Monopoly man? Yeah. yeah. His the name is Rich, Rich Uncle Money. Uh, Rich Uncle Pennybanks is his name. <laughs> so they're, they're actually Kyra's name, but it's funny. If, if you, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of literally 275 million of these sold. But I don't think more than a thousand of those people would be able to say Officer Edgar Mallory. That is maybe the best table quiz question you could put in the tough round in a table quiz no that's a table quiz question that gets everybody shot that's a quiz master dragged over a table and beaten with a heineken bottle other bottles are available round six question <laughs> 10 the answer was edgar mallory no got it no <laughs> right i'll give you some historical monopoly stuff. beautiful the thing you like um, so one of these stories I knew, one of them I discovered on a radio show about a year ago. I'll give you the one that I knew first, which is that it was banned in Cuba by Fidel Castro because at, and at that time it's doing great business in Cuba. Yeah. They were having as many arguments around Cuban dinner tables as they were in, in Ireland. <laughs> but he decided that it was the worst example of, of capitalism. It is pure capitalism, isn't it? Yeah, right. yeah. But that's the thing right now. I want to make this very, very clear. I'm not siding with Fidel Castro here. I'm just saying that if you forget Fidel for a while, right, we just park Castro and talk in general. It is the worst idea for a game when you actually think about it. For the all set round and go, here you go, kids. Granny, are you playing? Yes, right. The idea is to take all of the money and bankrupt everyone else and yeah. make them homeless. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That sounds an awful lot like what the Irish government and banking system did in about 2008. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, but the, the clip we're going to cut from this is I'm not siding with Fidel Castro. And then go, Colin Murray sides with CIA, finally reveals he was behind exploding cigar plan. <laughs> Do you know what? It's funny that is like, there's so many, you, you have seen that in, tab, in tab, tabloid newspapers have this great thing where if you ask someone to deny anything, so like if I go, Neil, did you kill JFK? And you're like, what are you talking about? Of course, that. Well, okay, news tonight that Dean Delamere's dead. And then everyone goes, Did he? I didn't know he did it. It's a great tactic in scum newspapers. <laughs> well, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Murray finally owns up to massive right wing leanings. <laughs> So, so you knew that one through your research. What was the yes. one you didn't know then? Well, I find out that, uh, which is uh, it's unbelievable, really, that during the war, during the Second World War, board games were allowed to be sent along with aid from the likes of the British Red Cross, etc., to prisoner of war camps. And they wanted to sneak in equipment and maps for escape plans etc etc and how they did that was in uh metal old style metal monopoly boxes 
because that was the game of choice and they worked out it wasn't being checked. It was oh just being sent God. straight in. So a lot of the escape plans and uh, survival equipment, digging equipment, compasses, maps, fake passports, all that stuff were all put, were all put inside below the, you know, whenever it was, lift the board up, lift the money up, lift the little container up and they would go stick it to the bottom of that and that's how they would get things in to prison or war camps. You've got to question the security at the POW camp that was like, you know, what's coming in? What kind of contraband is there? Well, you know, we've we've checked up their arses. There's nothing in the soles of their shoes, but they've got these giant metal game boxes. They're probably fine. Leave them. There's no way there's doing anything in that. Like, Or surely when someone's gone, I'll be the top hat. I'll be the compass. I'll be the lock pick. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the tiny hammer. <laughs> I'll be the atlas. I'll be this revolver. and so when uh, Colin I said what are you going to talk about he he told me this fact so I went and looked it up and it is absolutely class they set up fake um, charities like the licensed victuallers prisoners relief fund was one of them (laughs) and the money was like in the form of like in French and German and Italian banknotes just below the monopoly money and the reason apparently was because Waddington right who had the license for monopoly in the UK he had mastered a technology that nobody else had had done a, until that point. He could print on silk, and the Allies needed to be able to print, uh, obviously, these clandestine maps on a material that would be hardier than paper. It can be concealed. It doesn't rustle. And he had the technology, shall we say? That's amazing! Wow, that says a lot about you that you have. That's that's proper intelligence. Whereas if I just hear a slither of a fact, <laughs> I don't have that. <laughs> It's not. It's uh, not, I didn't trust you. After the... to, to, to search for it, I just go. I'll just parrot what somebody told me. Yeah, you know, I just thought he's Murray's going to make stuff up. I mean, he's a very busy man, and <laughs> I'm going to have to find out what the source is. I mean, so, so they had these little red spots on them, apparently, uh, on the free parking space, and that's how the POWs would know that, that was the one. But oh. we don't have them because they destroyed them because they were told destroy them. Obviously, afterwards. Yeah, obviously. But it's, it's something else, isn't it? The history of the game. That's unreal. Into, it you know. is fa- fantastic. And they've changed it loads. So, like, you get these different versions of Monopoly, credit card, and the prices go up. I hate all that. Just keep it as it is. Like, you, I don't need it. I don't want to use a credit card when I'm playing a boat game at home. You don't need to do all that, right? And what the most expensive one is worth two million. And it's got diamonds. Well, you know where it says the one and the dice? You know the dice? Yeah. They're replaced by diamonds. Some someone made it. Some nobody obviously thought they could make the most expensive one. And the board is twenty three karat gold uh, and all stop. of that. But you still argue over a dollar. Like you know, I've just... I've eight year old twins. They have lost the monopoly dice so many times. Imagine we're like, wait a minute, there's a eighteen karat diamond in the one. Get it? Get underneath the sofa and find it. I do like the description of some nobby made that. I mean, I would love to see the antiques roadshow and the guys waited for four hours in some UK stately home to to watch Fiona Bruce give him introduce him to an expert and some guy goes all right nobby next what do you got a monopoly board worth two million quid if somebody finds a two million pound monopoly board in their attic and needs to go to the antiques roadshow for them to tell them that it's worth some money <laughs> yeah not sure they should be able to keep the money the 23 carat board i think it might be gold but uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's really heavy i don't know what's going on i just like to see the guy he just bites it like a coin yeah no that's, that's definitely gold. Can I just saying, because people who love board games hate Monopoly chat, 
you know, like the proper, no. like, you know, talk the proper connoisseurs of board games, because every board game is always about Monopoly. Every, mm, mm. Yeah. But actually, it's, a lot, you know, there are way better games out there. But that's the one that holds all the nostalgia for us, right? There's, always. If they weren't playing Catan in one flu over the cuckoo's nest, no. most people can have a cook and a smile. But I just want to mention Ticket to Ride, which is amazing, but you just get the Europe version. If I was to recommend any board game, I'd recommend that. Because unlike like Monopoly, where you can feel like you're finished after 10 minutes, right? You know, because you haven't got around quick enough. You went to jail on your first two goes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the game over for you. You're never going to catch up. But you have to play it for another two hours. And people, and then if you get anything less than 100% motivated, your entire family or friends attack you, <laughs> even though you're done, because you, you, you can't possibly get any sets. Whereas Ticket to Ride, uh, my advice is don't add the scores up to the end and it keeps intrigue the whole way and it's just brilliant and there's so much going on even if you're kind of like I don't think I'm going to win this it's, it's too hard to explain but it's easy once you learn it it's one of those board games brilliant. but there's always something going on Just so if anyone's listening going you know we haven't played a board game in ages don't go out and buy the County Cork Monopoly uh, <laughs> buy a Ticket to Ride Ticket to Ride Europe okay I'm going to do that I'm going to do that on your recommendation we'll I forgot to say to you when um we were covering Monopoly before Christmas on the Blame Game, cutting edge panel show that it is clearly if we're talking about Monopoly. Um, it was about the Queen, and apparently the Queen had banned the family from playing Monopoly at Christmas a few years ago, right? And a source said that it was because it got too vicious. And I can't remember who on the Blame Game said they thought it was because she looked at her kids and thought there's no way any of them would could could win second prize in the beauty competition. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who said that. Um, who do you think would have been the worst? For at Monopoly, a lot of them. Who do you think would have like tipped the on a Rodney Trotter, you know, and tipped the board upside down of the royal family? Yeah, if they all got the, I think Camilla, Duke Camilla, Camilla, Duke absolutely. Camilla. Now Duke York's Modern. in jail all the time, all the time. <laughs> I think Duke York be all right. I think he'd just be. It'd be more like he'd be. Like, I remember when I went to that street. It was never that, you know. Yeah, I think Camilla just. Or he might be. Where, where, where was the beauty contest on? Yeah, <laughs> 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 he, he said Houston. I remember I was there in Houston Station on that night because it'd be highly unusual for me to be in Houston Station. Oh yeah, eating Good pizza man. and not sweating. And yes, there you go. You've been an absolute star. I can see why they have a mural of you. Pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Legend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Colin. Now stick around for part two. Oh, why do I say stick around like I'm on the radio? As if someone's going to listen to half the podcast and go, I can't stand any more than that. But one way <laughs> or the other. That is possible. I can guarantee you that. Stick around for part two. It is worth it. Not only have you just heard the wonderful Colin Murray, we're going to talk to Mary Pylon, who's an author and a journalist, about why everything you thought you knew about Monopoly is wrong. That's in part two. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to part two of Why Would You Tell Me That? I'm delighted to say we're joined by journalist and author Mary Pylon on the line now. She's the author of The Monopolist's Obsession, Fury and the Scandal Behind the World's Favourite Board Game. Uh, thanks for chatting to us today, Mary. Thanks so much for having me. So I explained to Dave in the first half uh, why essentially we've gotten Monopoly backwards. And uh, we will get to that. But let's start with the myth of the origin, if you don't mind. People might be listening to this and they might say, well, I've heard of a guy called Charles Darrow. He invented Monopoly. Game over. That's what the box told us, wasn't it? Exactly. So tucked into every game box, including the one I played as a kid growing up in Oregon here in the United States, was this Horatio Alger rags to riches story of Charles Darrow that during the Great Depression here in the United States, he was one of millions of Americans who was down on his luck. Um, and he goes into his basement and he innovates and he creates this game to remind his family of Atlantic City vacations and of better times. And, you know, he tries to sell it a bit on his own, but doesn't quite make headway and then ultimately sells it to Parker Brothers. And it's this massive bestseller. And he becomes this like Cinderella of board games. The problem with that story is it's not really true. <laughs> wow, what an amazing beginning to this conversation. There you I go, Dave. I love it. <laughs> Mary has already justified why would you tell me that, but it's yeah. going to get better. Okay. So we'll move away from Charles Darrow, but keep him in your head for a while there, Dave. Let's park him for a second. And we'll chat about Lizzie McGee, the person who could be called the creator of Monopoly. I think she has the claim to it, the title. She's about 13 in 1879, and her dad gives her one of the most important books of the age, Mary. So she was born in 1866, so you can do the math on her age. She was a really fascinating woman. The history of Monopoly really goes back at least 30, 35 years before Parker Brothers Monopoly, any of this stuff. So Lizzie McGee was an outspoken feminist. She was an actress. She wrote poetry. She wrote short stories. She was an inventor. She had a patent for this uh, typewriter gadget. Stenography is this really interesting profession. It was one of the few areas where women were allowed in offices and were allowed to work. And her father was this man named James K. McGee, who was a very influential thinker. He owned a newspaper. Uh, she grew up in Illinois, and he had actually followed Abraham Lincoln during the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So she, he very much infused a lot of these values about politics into his daughter. And one of the books that she read was this massive bestseller at its time called Progress of Poverty by a man named Henry George. And Henry George was really interested in what's called the single tax. And I won't totally wonk out on tax policy okay. here. Um, but single taxers were a huge deal in their time. And there were these things called single tax clubs. And the folks who were in single tax clubs 
you know, socially it overlapped with a lot of causes, including, you know, uh, what we now call today civil rights, racial equality, uh, women's rights, and economics. You know, this at the turn of the century in the United States, we were in a gilded age, not unlike the one I would argue we live in now, where you had extreme amounts of wealth being created and a lot of questions about how that should be taxed, what the government's role would be. It's wild when you research Henry George and single tax theory and Lizzie McGee, some of these op-eds and things that people were talking about a century ago could have been ripped from the headlines today. It's the same. We're arguing about the same, same stuff. And Lizzie McGee was super interested in that. And that's what sparks her to create the landlord's game. Okay, so uh, before we get on to the game, can I ask then, can you explain, as you said, you don't want to get bogged down in, in tax law, but what is a single tax? What is the logic here? Sure. Single taxers were really interested in the role of landlords, particularly in cities. So they wanted to create a tax that taxed land and only land. So interestingly enough, if you want to see kind of a real life uh, manifestation of this, there's a town called Arden, Delaware, that is still there today. And it was founded as a single tax haven. And they have all these like quirky laws about if you you don't actually own the land, but you can own the improvements on the land. We're starting to smell where houses and hotels come into this picture, right? right yeah. 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 Um, and because they thought that landlords were doing horrible things, which as a longtime New Yorker, that message really hit with me, um, <laughs> that they could just raise the rent what they want. It could destabilize yeah. things. And that l- public land parks, they were very interested in parks and public spaces, especially as we're getting more and more cramped in cities. Okay. I, I always thought New York had reasonable uh, landlord policies. I mean, I, I saw one documentary where a chef, a guy who worked as a paleontologist, um, an actor, uh, a massage therapist, they all had completely reasonable rent, I seem to remember. One guy, nobody knew what he did. And, um, uh, and then there was a buyer she was involved as well. So I always thought it was fine in Huge New York. Huge apartments and a purple door. Yeah, it was Huge, fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tons of space. Ne- nearby coffee shops as well. I mean, that was a perk, if you look. And everyone's gorgeous. everyone's gorgeous. Everyone's gorgeous. That part everybody's is true. gorgeous. Yeah. New York's a great place. But <laughs> right. And so again, it was interesting. It's not to me a coincidence that a lot of these single tax havens were really thriving in cities in Washington, D.C. Atlantic City at that time was a huge, huge um, vacation spot for people coming in from Philly, from people coming in from New York. So Lizzie gets kind of imbued with the Henry George's ideas about landlordism and the, the, the inequalities of society being based around land. And then when Henry George dies in 1897, she is it fair to say she's looking around about spreading the message of single tax theory and she alights upon games, board games, because they're really popular at the time. Exactly. So Milton Bradley and, pa- and George Parker had started their respective companies here in the United States, both in Massachusetts in the mid-1800s-ish. And remember, this is before radio is mass yeah. spread. This is before TV, obviously, way before the internet. And games were really, I think of them as cultural artifacts. I think of them as pieces of art, just the same way we talk about books or, you know, obviously later other pieces of pop culture. And games are really then and now an incredible teaching tool. And we're kind of seeing this renaissance and the idea of games and their role in schools and how we can use them to, dare I say, trick people into learning. Anybody who's gotten (laughs) addicted to a crossword or Wordle knows what I'm talking about. So she creates the landlord's game as a way to not just she'd written about single tax theory a lot and she continued to, but as a way to really show people how it would work, how the evils of monopolies would be. um, And and games are also kind of like role playing, too. Right. So it's a great way to kind of for anybody to kind of wrap their brains around these sometimes arcane topics. 
And when she creates her landlord's game, which she receives a patent for in 1904, so way before the Great Depression, she creates a game with two rule sets. One that's a monopolist rule set, which is the one that we actually end up gravitating towards where you have to control all of the board, and an anti-monopolist rule set, which is supposed to show exactly the opposite. And I've always thought it was interesting that given the options, we all chose the evil one, and that's the one that spreads as a folk game for 30 some odd years. And it's a version of that one that Charles Darrow is eventually taught and then tries to sell to Parker Brothers. There you go, Dave. She came up with two sets of rules, one anti-monopolist, one anti-Rockefeller and Carnegie and all the rest of the guys from the Gilded Age. And that's the one pretty much she kind of wanted to spread, I would argue, rather than the monopolist one. But we all went with the second one, not the one for all, all for one vibe. We can't be trusted. We just can't be trusted. No, we can't be trusted. Very interesting part about what was happening in games at this time. Like the game of life, am I right in thinking, had been around for 30 years and it it like the messages it was getting across, Mary, were like pretty pretty fruity to today's eyes. Absolutely. The Game of Life, which was published by Milton Bradley in the mid 1800s, is this really incredible, you know, again, it's an artifact. It's a reflection of the time in which it was created. And obviously now we have versions of it with credit cards and, you know, with you know, all, all sorts of other things that, you know, much more contemporary iterations. But the original one was really dark. And it reminds you that death just pervaded culture in a way that we take for granted. There's wow. a suicide square. And, it, and games before, you know, in the 1800s were very moral. They were about teaching. They were very preachy. They were about trying to teach kids things about the way the world worked, which at that point was really depressing. Um, this idea that games could be fun and, you know, and, and we zoom ahead to like video game culture, right? We're, we've come a long way in terms of just our thinking about games and the role that they play in society. And keep in mind, there's other things going on outside of the board game industry, like the industrial evolution, child mm. labor laws, um, indoor lighting. So now there like leisure time as a concept. I'm also a big baseball fan. That's also kind of part of this, right? That if there's a civil war raging and people are dying and starving, you're probably not, board games are probably not going to be the number one priority. You're not going to have as much time for them. But as U.S. history kind of rolls on, we start to see games. The game industry didn't really exist the way it does. Um, and it starts to explode. You did say we've come a long way. But I mean, I recently made a video in a local toy store here because I was buying something for my kids. And I was over at the board game area because it was a board game I was buying for them. And I just made a video of how many absolutely filthy, disgusting games they now show to kids. It was like, like poopy head, who tooted, like farty franny, snotty Sam, whatever. I was like, how? Like there was one where you just you would literally pull blackheads out of a plastic head. I was like, is this where we've gotten to as a society? This is all we can do for our kids is go, hey, let's play a game with a monkey who poos. I was just like. Amazing. Please bring back Monopoly in the game of life. <laughs> but this, this had like a destitute square and, you know, the, all, the, all these sorts of moral squares you could go down. It was it, it shows you the messages that we're trying to get across. So so what happens then, Mary? So she invents this 1904 Landlord's Game. It's pretty much the forerunner of, of Monopoly. Does it take off? Do people start playing it then? Yes. So the game starts to spread among like a who's who of left-wing America. So it's played in Arden, Delaware, the single tax colony. Upton Sinclair, the author of The Jungle, was an early Monopoly player. It had been played by Ernest Angel, who founded the American Civil Liberties Union. It was played on Ivy League campuses and a lot of college campuses um, throughout the Northeast. And I think for good reason, you know, I, I you know, people love the game. And 
it was a folk game. So you made up your own board. So if you're playing in Boston, you would put the Boston Commons on. If you were playing in New York, you put Broadway on there. And a version of the game makes its way to Atlantic City. And one group in particular loves it. And that is the Quakers of Atlantic City. And what's fascinating about this to me is that, you know, silence is a big tenet of the Quaker faith. So they reduce the role of auctioning in the game and add fixed prices. And of course they add Atlantic City because that's the city that they know. And they are, a lot of Quaker teachers are playing it. So they make some really great modifications that make it a little bit more accessible. Um, Also what I find really funny about this is that any games with dice were considered to be kind of edgy in Quaker circles at the time. They were associated with sin and gambling and chance. And so there were these accounts of Quaker families playing Monopoly in the early 1930s. And if their parents came, they would like hide everything away. Oh, so wow. I think of those board games as being so, you know, so vanilla now. But yeah. like, there was a time not crazy long ago when it was like, oh gosh, you know, we got to hide the Monopoly board. So what's your, what's your kink? It's, it's trivial pursuit. <laughs> oh my God. Roll the dice, Neil. Roll, Roll the, the dice, baby. Put the wedges. It puts the wedges in the thingy. <laughs> I can't so, imagine what they would make of Grand Theft Auto Five, which my kids. Oh my gosh! I'm like, yeah, you are yeah. not old enough for that yet. You're stealing a car and killing somebody in it. So people are kind of modifying the game that she invented themselves, which she kind of encourages. Absolutely, and she renews her patent in 1924, uh, which was concurrent with patent laws at the time. And she moves on with her life. She lives in Washington D.C. She worked at this really interesting place called the Dead Letter Office, which is where all of the nation's unanswered mail went, oh, wow. um, which is kind of an inherently dated concept. And women were also often, women and clergy were often hired for these positions because they were thought to be more honest. <laughs> if you know a lot about this, I think there could be an entire episode on what you just told us there. That sounds unbelievable. Yeah, the Dead Letter 100%. Office is a really uh, fascinating thing. And um, so the Todd family, so Charles and Olive Todd are these two people who play an Atlantic City version of the game. They run into their old acquaintances, the Darrows on the street. They have a Monopoly night, as was the fashion. And Charles Todd teaches Charles Darrow how to play the game. And shortly thereafter, Charles Todd asks him, hey, can you write up a copy of the rules? And Todd thinks this is kind of weird, because imagine if you played checkers at someone's house or a game that had been around for a long time. But nonetheless, he does it. It's a version of that game that Darrow sells to Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers starts marketing the game. and They realize that they have a big problem, which is that Charles Darrow did not invent Monopoly. And they start to hear from people for, who had been playing it for 30 years. Yeah. And one of the people they hear from is Lizzie McGee. She does two interviews with the Washington Evening Star and the Washington Evening Post, or Washington Post, excuse me. And she holds up her boards and she said, I invented this game. And they strike up this deal with her. And this is the part of the story and in my book where everybody goes, you should have had a lawyer with you, um, where she rents <laughs> away for $500. Oh, and, oh my God, because I was just about to ask you before you even begun this part of the story was how much money did Lizzie make this? I assume she was a multimillionaire. No, she made $500. $500. It didn't get credit, which is the part that a lot of people think she really oh, cared about. No. And one of the last traces that we have of Lizzie McGee, because she died in 1948, is the 1940 U.S. Census. And she lists her occupation as maker of games, which I thought was interesting because she had done so many things and her income is zero. So, you know, this was just right after the Monopoly craze. Darrow received a significant lump sum and residuals. And more importantly, arguably, is that he was credited as the inventor of the game until the 1970s when this economics professor, Ralph Onspach, got engaged in this absolutely nutty lawsuit about his game, Anti-Monopoly. 
And because of Ralph and his research and his lawsuit, I'm able to tell this story. He became this monopoly detective and his fate, a lot of it in court hinged on proving what really happened with the origins of the game. And he goes on this crazy odyssey that takes 10 years and ultimately goes to the steps of the Supreme Court. And he's victorious. He proves that he has the right to make his own anti-monopoly games, that you can't have a monopoly on monopoly. I couldn't make this up. <laughs> oh, beautiful. Um, and that the Supreme Court is, acknowledges Lizzie McGee as the originator of the game. And here we are today. It's just too little too late, though, isn't it? I mean, like, you would have loved her to have been celebrated as the inventor. I mean, okay, fortune may be one thing, but at least credit, you know, that she just took this idea and turned it into what we all know and love today. And for 30 years, people were playing it, but then it was just stolen out from under. I totally agree. I mean, I think it's it, one of the reasons I did the book, because if you say for five years you're writing a book about Monopoly, everybody thinks you're in that job. And now, <laughs> oh, by the way, um, and now that the book is out there, it's been really heartening to see the response that Hasbro, as far as I can tell, still won't acknowledge they own Parker Brothers, sure. that, that Lizzie McGee invented the game. But when they try to push back now, like, Twitter goes and it's okay. just like, what are you talking about? There's 300 pages about this woman and her role in the game. And the book is, you know, I'm lecturing about it at Harvard this week. It's being taught. It's being oh, wow. read. It's being digested. The Smithsonian has done something on Lizzie McGee. Like, so the, the wind of storytelling has changed so much. And I think history is full of Lizzie McGee's. I think it's full of people who make the world what it is, who have these contributions and then are systematically shut out or erased. And I'm just amazed that we have enough documentation to tell her story. In, uh, in 30 years, I'm going to write a book about the Monopolis and say that I was the first person to write a book about the Monopolis. <laughs> and it's going to go really well. And I'll be the first person well, who ever thought of it. That actually is something really I was well. going to ask, because I wonder, do you think, Mary, that it's, for, for want of a better description, powerful white men who have pushed, whether it's women or minorities, who have had this key role in the society that we now live in today, but it didn't suit a narrative that was popular at the time. You mean to tell me that the world is patriarchal? That's it seems crazy. to be, Mary. It seems to be. We're just finding it out now. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, absolutely. And even just the current, like when I released the book in 2015, I would get these emails from people like, that you're a left wing nut job, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I'm just telling the truth. Like, yeah. I, you know, my job as a journalist is just to get the story right. And I thought it was fascinating. And the book is fully unnoted. You can see all of my research and where I got things. Um, and now, you know, in the Me Too movement and stuff, it's gotten this whole other wave of interest where people are like, oh, a woman invented this game and people still can't talk about it or seem that, to when, not want to acknowledge it. Hasbro still won't acknowledge it now. That to me seems crazy. What, what's the advantage of them now saying that it was Charles, that Charles Darrow that, that's that invented it? That's a great question you know you'd have to ask Hasbro a few years ago I wrote a piece through the New Yorker about they I got I remember this really clearly I was sitting in my apartment and I got this ping that they were going to be releasing a feminist version of Monopoly and I was like oh my god this is it this is this is the it's acknowledgement that's Monopoly. <laughs> so lo and behold uh they released this game Lizzie McGee is nowhere to be seen and even worse the spaces on it are things like cho chocolate chip cookies Makeup, oh my like, and 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 I wrote this piece for the New Yorker, but even before that piece had published, the internet had destroyed feminist monopoly as just this. They can't even admit that a woman invented the game. This is everything you know. You can't just slap pink paint on something called feminism. And I thought that told that told me a lot about just the way that news has changed. That 
yes, journalism, which is what I do for a living, we need people to rigorously report the facts. And um, and I put this book out there and it found this audience and it found people who could correct the record basically in real time. So corporate narratives are still, you know, people spend millions, hundreds of millions of dollars trying to control stories and how things get presented. But I think there's something really heartening about the idea that when armed with evidence, you know, consumers can make different choices and speak their yeah. minds and have a voice. And I know it sounds silly because we're talking about a board game, but I also feel like it's not just a board game, right? No, it's not. No, there, I think there's there, yeah, there's there's more things at play here. And I think that surely it's a story that we want to hear now. In the same way that, Dave, if you think about how perfect that story is about Charles Darrow, it basically reinforces capitalism. It's a man down on his luck in the depression. FDR is trying to figure out things in a big house in Washington, D.C. Like, people are absolutely broke. And this guy who is unemployed, uh, allegedly unemployed, goes off and creates this game and makes himself a millionaire. So it's such an enticing story to people. The truth is the enticing story now, surely, you know, we're ready for us, I think. Totally. And I think the thing with the Darrow myth is it's such a great story. Mm. Like, who doesn't want to believe that? It's so romantic. Yeah. And who doesn't want to believe that they could be struck with by lightning and, you know, support their family and become this inspirational story for years to come? I think that's part of the reason it's persisted. But I would also argue that the Lizzie McGee story is an astonishing Even story. Even more so, yeah. Um, and really incredible. It has a lot of value. And I think that they, you see this now in like Silicon Valley and this idea of like the light bulb. And when you look at innovation, it's it's a slog. It's a hard, yeah. It's a lot of hard work. It's And creativity too is about showing up and putting in the work and grinding and grinding and grinding. You know, I've been working as a writer for years now and People like I don't have rose petals on my keyboard. I don't like yeah. I haven't been struck by the muse yet. Maybe maybe he or she will come. I don't know. But like you show up and you and I think that's good news because that yep. means that it's much more accessible and that you can put in time and do things. Um, and Lizzie McGee obviously was a workhorse. You know, she she put in a lot of time and a lot of different endeavors. But yeah, it's a, like, look, I just was trying to fact check an article for the Wall Street Journal and then now there were like, <laughs> here we are else for me too as a story but I think it's a crazy one really is well she she was some woman two patents Dave two patents for two entirely different things uh, a, a stenographer machine and the world's most favored board game uh, it's a fascinating story if you want to buy the book it's called The Monopolists Obsession Fury and the Scandal Behind the World's Favorite Board Game thanks to Mary Pylan who is on the show for the first time she will 100% be back for the dead letters thing if we have to stalk her to Oregon we'll go in wagons we'll do an Oregon trail thing it'll be very 80-80s Mary you're an absolute star thanks for telling us the story today of course thanks so much for having me Welcome back to part three of Why Would You Tell Me That? Wow. Well. Wow. I mean, I know I say wow a lot yes. on this podcast, yes. and I apologize, but that is the whole point of Why Would You Tell Me That? And you have uber delivered this. I cannot believe, first of all, that the creation of Monopoly was robbed yeah. from Mary, but also then that 
we end up in a situation where the whole idea of it was the opposite of monopolies. Yeah, she came up with two sets of rules, monopolists and anti-monopolists. And if you look at her background, she wanted us to go the anti-monopoly good right. of all world. Yeah, for the yeah. good for everybody. And we all took the opposite approach. Devils we are. Devils. Amazing episode. Yeah. yeah. Amazing Get Lizzie episode. McGee's name out there. I think we're part of that process. And thanks again to Mary Chu. What a good talker. Oh, incredible. Right. What have you got for me, though? Let me tell you about I have knocked it out of the park. Can we just No, you have. No, okay. you know, as I said, this like I've said well a lot in this episode, and, and there's a justifiable reason for that. But I think you might say a different word in next week's episode. You might thank your lucky stars yes. for the shivering, wet, grey climate of Ireland. Because next week, I'm going to introduce you to a person who lives in the coldest village on earth. Oh my God, is her name Elsa? No, <laughs> it's even colder than that. It gets to minus 72. Ah, jeez. And I'm not exaggerating. That's too cold. This is too cold. This is an amazing story. Uh, the woman who lives there, the, the things about the city, the things about the village she's talking about, You, your mind will genuinely be frozen solid and then blown. So please join us next week and we'll introduce you to Kuhn, who will tell us all about the coldest village on earth. Can't wait. If you can't wait that long, come along to Smock Alley, live show, April 4th, next Tuesday. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.